0: You know, I went into other commercial places and I also like to be the first person there because I know if I'm the first of species, first female, if I do it well, they'll bring my friends in. I don't have to know them, but the the rest of my species will join.
1: My name's Andrew Lee
0: and welcome to The Good Life, a
1: politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women... We have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. You might call Wendy McCarthy the zealot of Australian feminism. Over the course of her career, she has established the New South Wales branch of the Women's Electoral Lobby, served as CEO of the Australian Federation of Family Planning Associations, uh, been appointed to the National Women's Advisory Council, uh, served as the first woman on the New South Wales Higher Education Board and as a founding member of Chief Executive Women. In her 77 years, she's been a teacher, a businesswoman, a company director, and the Chancellor of the University of Canberra. She's worked in organisations as diverse as Star City uh, and Circus Oz, um, Plan International, and Sydney Symphony Orchestra. We're going to ask her today to reflect on some of her experiences in pathbreaking, in mentoring, and in leading, and how Wendy's extraordinary life can teach Australian men and women how to live better. Wendy, thank you for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so what does growing up in country Australia teach you? You were born in orange, is that right? Mm-hmm. How, uh, how is a country upbringing good for one?
0: Well, it's something I'm thinking about a lot now. And, and of course, you do think about these things as you get older. You think about what really shapes you and drives you. Be- being born in a little country town... Um, gives you a more intimate sense of community I think because you know the people in your street uh, you know the people across the road uh, your life is curtailed geographically I've been one of those extraordinary children for my lifetime my age who actually went to preschool and the preschool was you know like five blocks away with somebody minding the children and I also had a very young mother. She was 18 when I was born. And she was a sort of girl and, you know, a girl in the community in a way with the baby and
1: she'd had to leave school early, hadn't she? Yeah,
0: she left school at 13 and went to work to help her family. She was one of eight children and she was always someone though who wanted education for her children. And it was the education she didn't have. So, my father was a bit older, So, but in that little country town, there was a community. And when we left Orange to live in Goulburn, and where my father was managing a property, and then we ended up at Garima, uh, which had about 27 people, a week silo. It um, was a railway, little railway town. And I then had went to a one-teacher school until I went to high school. So I always had a small community around me. Mm. And I think I always had a pony. I rode to school on my own, three miles to school there in the back and then on my pony and then my bike and one of my siblings on the back for some of the time. And I think that sense of intimacy and community and resilience. I mean, I've certainly paid the price for sitting on the pony with no block out and no hat um, and an irish skin but it's it's a place where you're not restricted in any way and i know when i was writing my memoir in 1999 and the people kept saying you know what do you want to call it it's the hardest thing in the world and i was always thinking it would be gorima girl but there was a racehorse called that, so I decided to give that a miss. <laughs> and then all I could think of was, don't fence me in, that there was always an endless horizon. Forbes and Garima were flat, flat, flat. You could never see the horizon. And I think that has a big imprint. Didn't
1: take you long to go from Garima to London and Pittsburgh. Uh Conversely, what is it that shaped you about that experience of living overseas in in these big cities?
0: Oh, I think that going to London as a newly married young woman with an adorable husband and I learned to be Australian because I was always asked what it was to be Australian. And I found I had a shifting definition of what it was to be Australian. And... I was really interested in exploring that, and I found out a lot of things that were meant to be true about London, which was, you know, people, my, my parents called it home. They had, it had nothing to do with their lives, but they called it home. Um, and I think that, you know, you break through truth barriers because you find things aren't quite as, that you, as you've heard, where your major source of information was Reader's Digest and Woman's Weekly and My Family um because we didn't have papers delivered and i think i think learning to find out how the rest of the world works Mm. so i arrived in london when harold wilson became prime minister and winston churchill had just died i worked in a school that was had very political teachers i arrived in pittsburgh a couple of years later when Lyndon main johnson had just become president in a political school which was a convent where I was the only lay teacher and I learned a lot about being female because the social construct of women that I worked with in both of those places, both the nuns who were still in habit or the teachers at the school in Hammersmith, were they were not like the women that I'd met before. And that was a huge learning curve.
1: So it sounds like it shaped your feminism as well as your did. national identity. Yes.
0: yes. I mean, I'd read Betty Friedan before I left. At least I'd done that, But you know, because I worked with women teachers, you know, who were 20 years older than me, who said to me, you need to read this book. Mm. And they encouraged the young women in the staff room to read the book. And I often reflect on those women, and I think they were so well-educated. They only ever had casual jobs. Because they left school, they left when they had a baby. They had families, and and they were just, you know, they were intellectual, wonderful women. No permanency.
1: What were the other important texts in your development as a as a feminist? I guess uh, uh, Greer and Summers come along uh, in the, later in the in the seventies. What about in the sort of late sixties?
0: Well, I think in the sixties, in the late sixties, when I was living, well, in the mid sixties, I was in London and Pittsburgh and certainly I learned a variety of feminism and leadership from the nuns. I mean, I'm not a Catholic. Uh, They fortunately didn't discover that until after they'd hired me for about three months (laughs) and Mother Baptista asked me why I wasn't uh, saying my prayers. She said, I can understand why you don't recite the oath of the Constitution, but what about the prayers? And I said, well, Mother, I'm not a Catholic. And she said, but with a name like McCarthy and Ryan, how could you not be? And I said, well, (laughs) it just happens. But I think that, you know, they sent me to Washington. I said, take Mr McCarthy to Washington and you'll meet the the colleges where our students will go and it'll be good for you. And we went there and, of course, what she'd sent us to were the Washington peace marches. So I learned a lot about direct action. Mm and the success of direct action. And then I discovered they had a halfway house for conscientious objectors in this very elegant convent in Pittsburgh. So I did learn a lot about taking and I was just like a little sponge, you know, rolling around the world, absorbing all this stuff. So I learned a lot about the leadership of women. I learned a lot about what the social construct of being female was. And it wasn't, as I'd been brought up to believe, where I had a job, not a career and that I would just give away that job in time and get married and have babies. Well, I was intending to get married and have babies, but I wasn't impl- intending to go- give up work. But I think overseas, when I had the overseas experience. So Jermaine Greer's book was important to me, and my husband was the publisher of Angus and Robertson at the time, so we had a lot to do with Jermaine when she was travelling with female eunuch. Interestingly, Anne Summer's book, who, and Anne's a good friend of mine, was not important to me at the time. Mm. I I was off on a way and away with um, Kate Millay and Robert Morgan and Gloria Steinem and the people, some of whom I'd met in America. Um, and I'd been reading all that feminist literature on my way through in America, living in America. So, and you know, Anne's books, all of which, I, of course, I have read, but they weren't, they were books of a colleague, Hmm. rather than someone removed from me who was giving me different kinds of insights. Um, And I was really interested when I came back to Australia, which shaped me a lot, is when I was having my first baby, uh, wanting to make sure that I could birth as I wanted, um, and that my husband would be there. And that meant taking on the medical establishment in um, reproductive health. which I discovered I quite enjoyed. Um, And especially because I found a group of like-minded people who wanted their husbands there and wanted to make their own choices about birthing. And I think that was really... that led me into abortion law reform. And so by the... by 1970, I was building community in my local community. I was a resident action guerrilla. Um, With my husband, Um, I was helping run council campaigns to get rid of our local council, which we did. Interestingly, I've never been very interested in being the candidate. I like to be the person who organises.
1: Who organises and gets gets things done. It's a funny thing, isn't it? I'm not sure that the, uh, the the nuns at your school would have expected that you would have dived into abortion rights debates in Australia, but you did so very bravely. At one point, signing an open letter uh, among uh, eighty other women who said that you'd had an abortion yourself. Uh, what what led you to make that decision, and are you glad
0: you made it? Oh yes. Um, what led us to make it was that at that stage, people were the police were being very threatening to people who were having terminations of pregnancy. And the place where I had the termination of pregnancy, um, was there were police, con- you know, patrolling. And you knew the money that you handed in through the cage door, you knew some of that was going to the cops. And my husband was sitting outside and he saw the transfer of money going to the cops. So there was no doubt that, but they were, they were also protecting us. but that sort of protection isn't always the kind of protection that you can rely on. So, I mean, I didn't disclose my abortion for some years and then I thought, there is a thing in life that you either do it to yourself and you take hold of that information or someone will use it against you. And I, I was never ashamed. It was always absolutely the right decision. I never regretted it for one single minute. And I was, it was not my time to have a baby. And I remember us talking in Women's Electoral Lobby and abortion law reform, some of us talking and saying, well, the best thing we can do is say, if what we've done is so bad, just tell the cops to come and get us. And, of course, they didn't come to one of us. Mm. And that... I can't tell you how empowering that was, Andrew. It It was just breathtaking. I mean, first of all, you're sitting there waiting, you think, is there going to be a knock on the door? And will you regret it? But they didn't come near us. I did find I had an ATO file.
1: That's a badge of honour these days, I I expect, Wendy.
0: Mostly Uh, talked about my husband, though, which I thought was interesting. Like, I was married to him. I don't really know what it had to do with him. But anyway, that's what it was.
1: And you've uh, now got uh, three ch- three children and uh, some grandchildren as well. I understand. Yes, How many... I have five grandchildren. Five grandchildren. Yes, Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Uh, you continued to uh, to stay stay engaged in family planning. You were CEO of the Australian Federation of Family Planning as- Associations. Uh, at what point did you decide that you would uh, move
0: on to onto on other issues? Well I ended up in family planning because I couldn't be a teacher under my own conditions which you know I could only be a casual Um, and I could see that there was no career possibility for me there and being a casual meant you got a phone call at eight o'clock in the morning with three children under five you don't actually you can't move easily Yes, and there was almost no childcare so the two continuing things of my life are um, security of employment for women plenty of education, early learning education for children. So I found the job in family planning as a result of being part of a takeover of family planning where I was the dummy on the ticket because I was pregnant and it looked good. And (laughs) the optics were everything so I had to wear sort of hippie Indian things and, and pale blue suits so that I looked gorgeous and appropriately pregnant, which I was and with the humanist society we decided to do a takeover because it was a protest in part about the capricious nature of delivering services to unmarried women well we won every seat so suddenly i found myself on the board of family planning this was an unexpected result jubilantly i explained to my husband how good it was and the next day it went into administration he said you do know that there will be some things in our lives at risk What's your, li- you know, what's your liability? And I said, oh, skipping through the world, I didn't know. So I loved my time in family planning, and I learnt a lot. And I knew from then on it would be highly unlikely that I would go back to my teaching career, but I did. I went back to t- and taught in TAFE,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and TAFE remains one of the most intriguing institutions in this country. I think undervalued, overloved. Um, often, you know, not available and accessible in the way it should be. But it's a really important part of our educational infrastructure. And in this case, I was teaching pregnant school girls, people coming out of the armed forces and so on, their high school certificate in order to get into somewhere in the world. And I probably would have settled for a life in TAFE if I'd got the job but when the person explained to me that the reason I didn't get the job which I'd been doing for a year was that because there was a nice man who was 23 who, whose wife had a baby and who needed the job. And I just looked at him and I said well I have three children and a husband and I need the job and he said no 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 your husband's well off and I said you know nothing about my husband. Mm. And I don't know. That was probably the time, really, the penny dropped for me that the systemic challenges against women were more real than I'd ever really imagined, even though I did apply for 23 jobs before I got the job at, you know, family planning. And it was only because they said, if you go off the board, you stay off the board for three months, you can apply for the job, which I did and I got it. So I didn't didn't get that work easily. Mm. Um... But when I'd finished with that, well, two things happened, really. One is I went on the National Women's Advisory Council, which was a Malcolm Fraser appointment, and I got a really big pallet. I love working with the Commonwealth. And, of course, I had been with family planning, and I was there because of my family planning role. And I think then, you know, in 1985, I was appointed as Deputy Chair of the ABC. and an institution, you know, which I still consider Australia's most important cultural institution and which I love very deeply. And, I mean, as a child I used to sit... I was always the only one in my class because there were only 25 kids in my school and I'd mostly just listen to ABC radio. That's how I did primary school, basically, which didn't do much for my mathematics but um, did a lot for my reading and comprehension. And I think that during that time... I could see the possibilities and opportunities for change, I could see mm. the importance of voice. You know, we don't, we don't talk enough about finding your voice. And I'd found my voice in the Women's Electoral Lobby, and I found my voice I guess in the Childbirth Education Association, but in the ABC when you could see the consequences of using voice, um, it was a profoundly attractive idea. So. Going on that board while I was still on the board, uh, still running family planning, was fantastic. And then I went into the bicentennial authority, where I went from a hundred and sixty thousand budget to sixteen million. Perfect. <laughs> uh,
1: you've also been very active among uh, chief executive women, and I guess when we look across institutions in Australia. Um, uh, the parliaments, the judiciary, uh, the media and business. It's business which has the lowest share of women in those, those top roles. Uh, why do you think that is and, and what can men and women of goodwill do to change it?
0: Well, I think when my parents' generation were educating their girls, they thought of professional careers. So teaching was the, the most accessible for women. I mean, I don't, there, nobody from my class at Forbes or my class at Tamworth did medicine, for example. I don't think anyone did law. So teaching was the professional career and there were scholarships and, which enabled us to have four years university education. Nobody I knew talked about business. My father, you know, grew wheat and sheep and, and so on. It was ne- they were called names like graziers, and so it was all quasi-professional. Business was seen as just a little bit like trade, and a bit below everyone who was mm. upwardly aspirational. I think we sometimes forget these cultural moldings around these things. So, in the early women's movement, there were no women from business, um, and those, and there were, you know, there were some lawyers and professional service people and there were doctors involved in family planning and health services. But it seemed to me that was always the big part that was missing. So when we... We'd had a couple of goes at setting something up that making business more interesting and then when I met Barbara Carl and Ita, whom I knew, and Carla Zampatti and so on, saying, look, you know, we need some sort of representation, it seemed to me that was the bit. I mean. I think, you know, there's business, government and religion and community. They're the four pillars of our society and we need to be 50% in all of them. Mm. And so setting up a business group where women could support each other in business, I thought was a very important thing to do. But there are still a lot of people who were thinking in the feminist movement, even in the middle 90s, that Nirvana was a government job rather than a business job. But it's changed. It's probably changed quite a lot. (laughs) You've also,
1: one of the other things that intrigues me about your career is the extraordinary portfolio of activities you've engaged yourself in. Uh, You've written a sex advice column for Clio. You've uh, helped, uh, you've been chair of Circus Oz. You're a director of Star City. Uh, You've been director of the Australian Multicultural uh, Foundation, the Australian Heritage Commission. You seem to have enjoyed in your career combining some very diverse roles, Uh, and I wonder if you could say something about how that's worked out for you and and what that means for the advice that you give young people uh, looking to have a career as exciting as yours. Do do we perhaps overdo specialisation? Because being a generalist seems to have worked out magnificently for you.
0: Yes, I often think of myself as a specialist generalist. And, Tell me more about that. Well, it seemed to me that education is not a limiting career. It's, it's an expansive way to see the world. The good educators are curious. Mm. They know how to take risks. They know how to research and synthesise. And it seems to me that if you can stand up in front of, you know, say six different groups of 30 young minds for 40 minutes every day you have to be fairly agile in terms of thinking and I never thought that I had to know everything. I thought that I learned with the children that I was teaching. So I've always been curious to take a risk and once I didn't, once there was no chance that I would have an incrementally successful linear career as an educator, Mm. I had to say to myself, you will work in different classrooms. I still think of myself as an educator. Right. But I do work in different classrooms and I've learned to, to find out... I've, I've learned what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. So I'm very good at asking questions and getting to the point. So I can get that synthesis that you have to get in a classroom if you're going to be a successful teacher. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I've always loved the arts. So Circus Oz for me was a place where... People went to be performers. Some of them, of course, extraordinarily well-educated, but it was a place where children could aspire to go. Now, whose parents didn't necessarily have the stock exchange for breakfast. Mm. Um, they were people who were very diverse group of people. Joy performance, very community-based, and seemed to me that that was the. Per- I mean, I've been always engaged with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, but. I've always thought that that was a way through into the world of the arts through the circus because they do everything. You mm. know, they perform, they sing, they, they bounce around, they play music, etc. And And also they've developed an art form which is world class. I mean, to be the chair of Circus Oz and walk down Broadway and see billboards about come and see Circus Oz is really a magnificent experience. And, I've, and, and so health goes with education. It's, you know, if you don't have health and education, you don't have much. Mm. Um, and, I've, and part of me was a perversity going into some of those commercial areas because I got rather sick of people saying, oh, you know, she's just good at a bit of that, you know, you know, because the, the whole pendulum moved, you know, that kind of not-for-profit stuff, you know, she doesn't know anything commercial. Well, there's not that much to learning stuff about being commercial. And so I decided to manage a commercial legal firm when I got an offer and I decided to go. Star City was a challenge, but the fun about that was taking on Kerry Packer because everyone told me not to do it. Everyone said Packer would win. And I just believed that they could not possibly give a casino license to Kerry Packer. So I went in with the underdogs and of course we won. And then I stayed for a while. And I got a lot of criticism about that, but you know, casinos are a fact of life and they're Disneyland with a gambling palace and 90% of people have a reasonable experience. The worst part of the, the, the gambling world to me is a um, slot machine and a poker machine in every single pub in Sydney. And when we went to the casino, we had a promise from the Premier that there would be no more Um, poker machine licences, everything would be consolidated. We should have sued him for Breach of Promise, really, because that was was when gambling really took off. And of course, once it funds government, it's very hard for government to let that go. But, you know, I went into other commercial places, I've just come out of a class litigating thing, IMF Bentham,
1: Mm.
0: and I also like to be the first person there, because I know if I'm the first of species, first female, if I do it well, they'll bring my friends in. I don't have to know them, but the, the, the rest of my species will join. And it's part of my thing about... It's not about role modelling. I'm not vain about it, but just for, for people to get used to the idea yes. that it's better to have a diverse board. We think differently and we should and you get a better result. And I don't think I've left anywhere where people haven't believed that is the case.
1: You also think uh, unusually systematically about uh, uh, leadership and particularly through uh, your work in establishing a uh, mentoring firm in 1998, which your daughter Sophie now runs. Uh, why, why should people think about getting a mentor if they don't have one already? And, and what role have mentors played in your life?
0: Well, I suppose I'd, I think I'm an instinctive mentor. And I think that I was mentored by some very interesting men and some very good women. But I'd never it was never formal. In some cases, it was men I worked with um, who gave me a chance uh, and, you know, gave me jobs that... I mean, most of the jobs I've had since I left teaching, I have no qualifications to do except curiosity and a brain. Um, And I think that it's a high sense of trust. I mean, I I just wrote this little bit of an obituary for Bob Hawke the other day saying when I think back that I was made the Deputy Chair of the ABC at the age of 42, it's pretty amazing that I got... had somebody trusted me enough to put me in that job. And Mm. I felt very responsible and I loved doing it. And... You know, I had other appointments where people trusted me to do that. So that builds a high sense of reciprocity. Yes. So coming back to mentors. So uh, in... You know, Joan Bielski was a wonderful mentor to me, a woman who's 20 years older than me. Beryl Burrow Pair was wonderful. And and even at college, you know, I had... um, I I had, uh, you know, the women's college principal and so on. And I think that... I began to think about it a lot when I was working in the 90s with Citigroup and we, I did a cultural map for them and it was so appalling some of the behaviour and there were very few protections and I said to the CEO, well, you know, if you're going to, he said he was going to put some women into the senior uh, executive team and I said, well, they're going to find it really tough because there's so many badly behaved people there. He was a new CEO. Mm. And he said, oh, well, I'll just get a couple of people to support them. And I said, oh, that sounds a good idea. So I'd finish my job and I went away. And he rang me up about three weeks and he said, just come and have a talk to me. He said, I'm not doing well with this. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, he said, you know, I had these three young women. They're really smart. And I went to a well-known group of men and I asked if they'd support them. And they're all the age of about the women's fathers. Women are all in their 30s. And they all came back to me and said, we're not going to go to those men again. They just download on us, which is what older men do, still do. And um, they create their careers and say, this is it. And he said, well, what do you want? Mm. And they said, we want women whose shoes we can walk in, which is what Atticus Finch said. But I... Except he said men i just thought about that and i said yes i said i'm reading a lot of charles handy at the moment and i think that that's where i'm going and i was we- reading also um quite a lot of management books then and i was reading most as a trusted advisor and i thought that's what we want and the reading took me to the story of um, Odysseus and mentor and penelope and so on so I thought that's what I'm going to do so I said okay well I'll take them on and I developed this mentoring model and it, you know it's over 20 years now that that mm. business has been in existence. I can look around Australia and see literally hundreds of people whose lives I've, I've enabled not because I've personally mentored them but because I've arranged mentoring, pe- mentors for them and what a mentor does essentially is helps you find your and trust your voice by just asking questions and listening and then supporting you when you make decisions. And always my rule has been the mentor cannot be in charge of your pay packet or your promotion. So all the mentors have been external. So even that is a big risk for a CEO who says, one CEO rang me and said, well, I hear that you've you've got um, an ex-ALP senator mentoring one of my women. I don't want one of those ALP, and here this is a business. like." And I said, well, you know, she's very senior, she's very experienced. The young woman she's mentoring thinks she's wonderful. If I was you, I'd just leave it alone for a bit and see what happens. (laughs) And he did. But I think to have someone who you can really trust, who's Mm. not of your family and so on, but with whom you've developed this relationship, it's a wonderful metaphor for going through life and having a large network of people you can refer to.
1: Wendy, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: I think... I think always I'd say, in today's today's language, which is hard for my teenage self, I wouldn't have understood it in terms of risk-taking. But don't be afraid to say yes and work it out later.
1: Were you ever afraid of uh, saying yes and working it out later? That seems the... uh Almost your, uh, an apt motto for your career.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I think in matters of family planning and the heart, sometimes I was. <laughs> I certainly said in my Clio column to young women, say no first and think about it later. But I do think say yes first and think about it later because I do think if someone makes you an offer in terms of business or education, let's not just talk about other relationships for the moment... It means they see something in you that you may not see in yourself. Mm. And when you've had time to think about that and think about the possibilities of doing it, you don't have to go into the girl mode and say, no, I don't have a PhD and the boy down the road's got a PhD and he should do this and, and start back shuffling. You say yes. And that's what I want to say to young girls. Say yes. And find a mentor and someone to help you.
1: What's something you used to believe but no longer do?
0: That's a really good question. Um, I've always believed in climate change. <laughs> I'm a farmer's wife and a farmer's daughter. Um, I'm not sure that I can answer that question, Andrew. What I once believed that I don't. I, be- I don't believe in organised religion, but I do believe in spirituality. Um, and I acknowledge the significance of organized religion I think it's a very powerful in our world
1: have you grown more warm towards spirituality through your life or have you always well, seen I've always, well I think
0: you know for me humanity is an expression of spirituality mm. and I think a common humanity is something that I'm always moving towards and there are most times I think there is a common humanity and then there are grotesque times when you know, 500 girls are taken in Nigeria and things, and I think, how can that be? And I have been challenged in America by Americans in the last couple of years, but you know, I still think of America as the best and the worst in the world in a funny way. Um, but I suppose I'm always striving towards that common humanity, and and whatever spirituality wraps itself around that is something that I like to do, but. I don't think my belief system has shifted very far from that. But that was I wouldn't have expressed it in that way as a young woman, but that's always in a way where I'm going. When are you most happy? I'm probably most happy when I'm with children. Um, my own children give me great joy. Um, my grandchildren give me lots of joy, but I like everybody's children. Um, And I guess the only other major happiness is, you know, I had a 53-year-old marriage and there was a lot of sadness when my husband died a year or so ago but to have an enduring marriage which gave me joy and happiness I realise is the most precious thing and I really value that and so I don't like everybody's husband but I do like everybody's children. (laughs)
1: What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: I did yoga for a long time but then I had a bad knee and so I had to have a new knee and yoga is not conducive to a knee replacement. So I, do, I walk and swim, I read, I write and I love to cook. Um, but in, I suppose they're, the, they're the, daily, the daily things that provide me with a sense of equanimity and happiness and i do you know for years i've been part of a farming business with my husband i do find i miss open space so i've had to learn in the last couple of years to refocus myself to get that Mm. sense of space i've always said i love living in cities and i do but it's fine to say love living in cities when your husband's on a farm and he can go home for the farm at the weekend and and i have to I have to rethink some of that. But I'm a contented person. I've had a wonderful life and I feel good about it and still got a few things left to do.
1: Do you have any secrets for a successful retirement?
0: Never retire, just stay engaged. I decided to finish all my board work at the end of December. So any board work I do now will be as an advisor rather than as a director. Um, I just want to stay engaged in community affairs. At the moment, I'm trying to get um, abortion off the de- the, off the criminal act in New South Wales. That's something that's been an enduring thing. Um, I've been working on that on and off since about 1968, so it's certainly time it happened. Uh, and I've got time to do community things. So, And I'm starting a new book, uh, and I'm... I'm just very content at the moment and I want to be, I like being an elder. I feel I'm a tribal elder and I think I can enjoy that role. I love that notion.
1: And finally, Wendy, which person or experience has most
0: shaped your view of living an ethical life? Probably my husband. Best friend, highly ethical, saw him leave major companies for what he thought was inappropriate behaviour. So having a partnership, um, he probably has been the biggest influence of my life, yes.
1: Wendy McCarthy, thanks so much for taking the time to speak on the Good Life podcast today.
0: Thanks for having me, Andrew. I enjoyed it.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.